Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Nick Bowles. And if you've been following the news this week, well, he's been one of the most prominent names you'll have seen. Sensationally resigning from the Conservative Party after resigning from his local association, he finally had enough. And in this fascinating interview, he tells us all about how he got there. And you might be a bit surprised at um, at which point he made the decision. And I won't, I won't ruin that um, at all. Um... Nick was meant to do the Christmas special with Alistair Campbell, uh, but sadly wasn't able to do it. So I've been trying to rearrange, and it's great to get him on. Especially, I mean, of all the weeks to talk to him, uh, really, this this is the best. So it's worked out in the end. And he's someone I've always admired. He's always been a reasonable voice, a calm voice, a pragmatic voice. Um, you know, the, the sorts of Tory that um, that people with my politics kind of, I suppose, uh, warm to. And he's uh, he's such a charming and decent man i met him a couple of years ago we were both on um, peston on sunday and he was just such a a night and it's not you know what it's not even about his politics there are just some people when you meet them for the first time that are open and friendly and approachable and he he was very much like that and not all politicians like that and indeed not all people are like that and i just um thought it said a lot about him so it was a pleasure to talk to him he's uh insanely modest I think is the way that I would um, sum him up good humoured good natured and uh, well I shall not uh, prolong this anymore oh oh, I do have some news I'm doing the Bloomsbury Theatre which is amazing so we've extended the tour because um, obviously Brexit hasn't happened yet and I'm delighted on the Saturday the 5th sorry Saturday the 25th of May Saturday the 25th of May I'm doing the Bloomsbury Theatre in London with a fully updated modernised Brexit through the gift shop so please buy tickets to that because it's a bloody big room so thank you um, in advance for, for some of them have already sold it went on sale this morning so do get your tickets to that this Saturday the 25th of May in the Bloomsbury Theatre uh, what a way to uh, I say end the tour who knows how long it's going to go on I think that will be the end of it um, so oh my word that, that's very exciting also the future guests at the political party live at the end of April will be Suella Braverman leading member of the ERG and at the end of May uh, Ken Clark uh, the tour continues as well Faversham uh, on Friday the 5th of April um I added an extra date at the Salford Lowry. That's on the 9th of May. I mean, Aberystwyth on the 10th of May. In Edinburgh on the 12th of May. Uh, Glasgow on the 13th of May. Newcastle on the 14th of May. Chorley on the 18th of May. Uh, and then Camberley on the 24th. And of course then, um, London, Bloomsbury Theatre on the 25th of May. So um, do get your tickets to that. I shall now leave you in the wonderful hands of Nick Bowles. Nick, what an incredible week to be talking to you, and thank you so much for coming in. I don't really know where to start. There have been so many pieces of individual drama, but let's start with your um, announcement in the House of Commons 
this hugely dramatic moment where you say, I failed chiefly because my party refuses to compromise. I regret, therefore, to announce I can no longer sit for this party. And then you leave the chamber to um, applause on some of the opposition benches. And, and um, f- what is picked up on the mic is, I, I think it's Johnny Mercer. No. No, it's not. It's Hugh Merriman. Hugh Merriman goes, oh, Nick, Nick, don't go. Come on. It's <laughs> lovely kind of despair, but sort of um, very um, controlled despair in yeah. his voice. So firstly, um, how do you feel having taken this momentous decision? Shell-shocked. I think it really is uh, shell-shocked. And not, um, uh, I don't regret it. Um, in fact, it feels right. Um, and in some ways, uh, inevitable. But nevertheless, it's a you know it's, it is a very uh, wrenching thing to do. Oh, you can tell that it was the emotion is clear on your voice. I mean, so many people listening to it will have seen the clip, and if not, you, know, you can find it on the BBC website and YouTube and other places. To reach a point where a party that's been your life, that has been wedded to the values that you you know you live and breathe, and the, and a certain amount of personal ambition and all those things all together, been a vehicle for so many things, then find yourself leaving it. Can't have been a decision you took lightly. So the weird thing is, is that it was a spur of the moment decision. No way. Yeah, but and often it's often happened to me in life. Uh, most of the big decisions I've ever made are things that I've thought about a lot in advance. So it wasn't that I hadn't sort of played it out of my mind. And uh, as you may know, I sort of parted company with my local party. Yes. A few weeks ago, but at the time, I very was very, very clear in my mind that I wanted to stay as a Conservative MP and a member of the Conservative Party nationally for all that I'd obviously fallen out um, uh, with my local association over my attempts to stop no-deal Brexit. Um, and I'd, at the time when I'd been preparing myself to do to take that step, I thought through, do I actually, is this... You know, uh, am I missing a trick here? Should I be b- being more honest with myself? Should I, you know, actually go the whole hog? And and I very so I thought about it a lot, uh, uh, but I'd rejected it. Yeah. Um, and then um, uh, on Monday night, I did just snap uh, the final bit of elastic, keeping me tied to, as you say, the the the, the political vehicle to which I've been attached for you know best part of twenty years. Um, snapped, uh, and it was a decision. I didn't. I didn't even know I was going to say what I said when Whoa. I stood up. I mean, so, I, I got halfway through the sentence and decided that was the conclusion. Oh my god! Because I just presumed, you know, um, that you'd. I mean, when you left your local association, I thought, well, now it's inevitable. You know, there'll be a period of time, and then you're kind of edging towards the door, and totally understandably. Um, but to to get up on the you know on your feet in the floor of the House of Commons and and to kind of only realise mid sentence that you're mm-hmm. resigning from the Conservative Party, the party of government, the the party that you served and been close to its former leaders, it, it's just uh, I suppose subconsciously perhaps you made the decision and then <laughs> your brain realised yeah. on your feet. I mean, did, was there any part of you that so you do you? It looks like on the video you leave the chamber yes. completely. You then come into the members of it. I mean, is there any part of you that thinks, oh, God, what have I just done? I mean, the adrenaline must have gone mad. Yes, no, but funnily enough, I, I, um, I walked very perfectly. I didn't go into the members' lobby. I went straight into the 
uh, I lobby because my my office is back right the other end in right. uh, the other side of Portcullis House. And I just walked straight out and a couple of people ran out. Um, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Gavin Barwell, very nicely came out and just said, are you OK? Oh, um, and then Rose, whose surname is so complicated, I never remember it, the, the Speaker's chaplain uh, came rushing down the, the corridor as I was walking uh, down it just to again check that I was OK. And, and, you know, not at all, in Gavin's case, trying to, you know, argue with me just checking that i was okay well, that's um, good. which is good and um and i i'm not, I'm not sure if i was okay but i at least made as if i was and um uh, and and walked back to my office got out of my suit got into my jeans <laughs> and got on the bus on the number 12 bus and went back to camberwell uh and um and then sort of collapsed on the sofa <laughs> Uh, and thought, wow, what a, what what a, what's just happened? And did anyone on the bus recognise you? No, no, not that you're aware. I'm very, I'm very happily very very few people ever do. I'm I'm not that kind of famous, so um, uh, uh, no, I, uh, that didn't happen. I think people do underestimate sometimes with politicians. You know, the extent to which emotions are an important factor. Um, you know, that for all that we are having arguments, usually, at least attemptingly, to be rational in our arguments. Yes. Um, uh, and to be, you know, bringing forward evidence and logic and all of the other stuff of argument. Um, all the stuff that's gone out of fashion. Uh, yeah. Well, I, and I, I think you're right. I think emotion, if anything, is more important now than it's ever been. But, 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 but not just emotion in terms of the communication with... Uh, voters and the public but but actually emotion in ourselves and you know you can think everything through and you can have a strategy and you can have tactics and you can have a plan but ultimately also you're a human being yes and sometimes human beings reach the end of their tether uh, and I reached the end of my tether on my feet you know in the house of commons on Monday night it's, um, I mean, it's, uh, th- that speech itself was, was powerful. There was something else you said in an interview with the BBC that the moment I heard it, and when you see it written down, I can see students in A-level politics in 20 years starting a, 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 you know, a module with this quote at the top of the page, which is the Conservative Party doesn't exist anymore. It's two parties who happen to sit at the same side in the House of Commons. And that just feels like one of those quotes, a bit like um, the longest suicide note in history. It feels like a quote from someone on that side. It feels like such a crystallised observation, so accurate, and but so damning and powerful. The Conservative Party doesn't exist anymore. And I know what you mean. Um, is the Conservative Party now doomed to split? In a way, I think it has split. The question is, can it come back together? Yeah. It, it's not about whether it splits, it's whether it comes back together. And it takes all sorts of forms. Um, you know, normally, uh, as you well know, the House of the Commons is a... Uh, I mean, it's a totally dysfunctional <laughs> place, uh, as will come as no surprise uh, to any of your listeners. But it, but we, we try and maintain a, a sort of... Jokey, friendly, 
hello, you know, without actually ever listening to anyone or showing any interest in their lives. But still, we, we maintain the pretense of cordiality and yes. camaraderie. Um, and, and not just within parties, across uh, parties too, though often it's easier across parties. Um, but we, but one tries to do it within parties. And, and I've certainly always tried to do it. And I, I, I don't have, you know, close friendships in politics other than one uh but uh but i have you know friendly political friendships what i'd call them Uh, and one of my political friends uh has always been jacob rees mogg and i didn't know him well before coming in but we came in on the same day uh we actually chose to sit next to each other in the house of commons you find your own seat and it's quite an odd process because you're you literally could sit anywhere on your your sides benches um it's obviously not allocated to you because there aren't enough seats for everyone but you basically decide this is where i feel comfortable yeah. and it helps the speaker then to know where you are so that if the speaker wants to call you then they know where to find you um and um i sat next to, to jacob right far away from the speaker's chair with yeah. this sort of perspective down the whole of the the chamber which i really liked and over the years Jacob, who's a much more regular attender of Commons debates than I've ever been. Uh, but nevertheless, when I was there, um, you know, I'd talked to him because he's a fascinating man. He's got yes. a huge amount of knowledge about Parliament and history. And I'm historically completely uneducated and, and illiterate. And so I would, you know, always ask Jacob about what's this and what happened then and how does this work? And so we, you know, struck up one of those political friendships. Yes. Um, we, you know, we'd never see each other in outside of, 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 of Parliament, but we, we, we liked each other, enjoyed each other's company. He's a funny man, uh, you know, made each other laugh um, and would always be cheerful and, and friendly towards each other. And unfortunately, that's sort of gone. Oh, man. And, and I've felt over the last few weeks... That where I sit next to him, maybe because of his, he's a centre of gravity, or maybe it's just chance, has sort of become the ERG, the Brexiter end of the bench. Yeah. And so you've got Bill Cash is nearby, and uh, uh, various other senior figures. Uh, Steve Baker sits that round there. Um, Richard Drax, Marcus Fish. So it's become the sort of ERG headquarters and then actually the people who I've most associate myself with identify with and have been working with most closely in these recent months Oliver Letwin Nicholas Soames Richard Bennion Jonathan Genogli Antoinette Sambach they all sit right at the other end near the speaker's chair Uh, and it always I always thought I'm not going to move just because you know I disagree with (laughs) Jacob that would that would be giving in but it's felt increasingly odd and a little uncomfortable, and not because I'm hastened to add, not because there's been any unpleasantness right. or or anything from any, okay. of, you know, not for a second. So it's all about me. This is what's been going on in my head. Okay. I've just felt I don't belong here. These, this is not my home anymore. These are not my people anymore, and and that is why I think I said what I said to, to Laura Coonsberg, which is that, that, you know, the Conservative Party doesn't exist anymore. Because once you've lost that feeling, you know, what I, I don't know whose line it is, but the ties that bind, yeah. the ties that bind have disappeared. 
Just on your relationship with Jacob then and how difficult that is to say, I totally understand why when things are becoming so divided and divisive, you don't want to be sitting near the people in your party you agree with the least. But and that they weren't necessarily hostile to you. But is it just that you would hear them muttering things that you disagreed with and thought, I just don't want to hear this? Is it like muting someone on Twitter? Yes, it did quite similar to that, because what they would do is that, you know, that they would groan or heckle when somebody else said something yeah. that I profoundly agreed with and was delighted by. Yeah. And so you do, there's a sort of dissonance builds up yes. uh, between you and them. And, you know, I, I think we have to be honest about this. You know, I have been entirely focused now for four months on denying them their dream. Yeah. Now, not Brexit, because I believe we need to Brexit, and I keep on voting for Brexit, but a no-deal Brexit, which in truth most of them now would prefer. They actually would prefer to leave without a deal, uh, what they call a clean-break Brexit. And I have literally spent all of my time and all of my energy and all of my emotional and other resources on trying to stop that from happening. And, of course, it reached its culmination yesterday uh, with this uh, bill that uh, Oliver Letwin and Yvette Cooper managed to get through with one vote. Uh, uh, and and so I can completely understand. They're pretty furious with me. You know, they, they've been working for this for a very, very long time indeed. And they have um, uh, they see it slipping through their fingers. Uh, so I don't blame them for for any sort of lingering hostility that might be there. Though, again, I want to emphasise that there's never been anything said that was, you know, angry or offensive. It's more a mood. But you've never said to Jacob, oh, come on, man, you've just been a bit unreasonable. Like, you know, the the way you're behaving isn't becoming of a Conservative MP. Have you ever challenged them even gently about the way they behave? Uh, No, so so I have, not with Jacob, um, I have... uh, challenged but but on on twitter not not in conversation uh what some of what mark francois has said <laughs> i was going to ask um, you about mark francois. Uh, uh which i think has overstepped you know quite a lot of lines um with jacob it's more i have had the conversation with him i think probably before meaningful vote two where i just said to him jacob why can't you do this you know you'll get what you want it will it will get us you know we'll be out of the eu by the 29th of march you'll then be able to you know go from there this is a process not a event you know yes. all of the arguments and and in a very sort of easy friendly but slightly pleading way um and he took it you know as he always does he engaged with it seriously and we talked about you know is it the dup that he needs to to, 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 to enable him to, to, to be able to take that decision. Obviously, he did ultimately for not really meaningful vote three, but meaningful vote two and a half, <laughs> yeah. people call it. Um, he did take that step, um, uh, though I think pretty reluctantly. Um, but, um, but no, I haven't. I, uh, it, you try not to have stand-up you know, confrontations. Because yes. my view is, you know, we've all thought about this quite hard. We've all come to our conclusions. You know, what I say is not going to persuade Jacob Rees-Mogg or Bill Cash, you know, who've been, you know, on this bandwagon for decades. Nor is what they say going to persuade me. So let's just try and be polite and friendly. But what, you know, what really saddens me in a way, and it sounds so, you know, someone who's never voted Conservative is, I have a huge respect for political parties and 
I have a huge amount of respect for the Tory party, particularly the kind of conservative that you are, the kind of, you know, national interest, liberal, internationalist. And I just think you're such a huge loss. And I, I think it's almost the same with, you know, the, the, the way the Labour Party is going, is these two great parties that have done so much good for the country and the world now seem to be in hock to a minority interest on, on both sides. And mm. where the Labour issue with momentum has been very widely publicised and very vocal, it seems to have been a little bit... Not, it's been done in a different way with the Tories, but out of the sort of Aaron Banksification, this Leave.eu um, transition into a kind of deselection um, movement within the Tory party mm. hasn't had the same attention that the Labour problems have had. Maybe because it's not as widespread, maybe because mm. the leader isn't necessarily on side. I, I get that. But nevertheless, the reality of it for you has basically been you've had a right-wing momentum in your constituency, you've had new members join, take over the party and change the tone of your local politics. I mean, is that, is that an accurate kind of a, uh, assessment of what's happened? It's not not entirely accurate. It's, 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 it's an exaggeration. I mean, the first thing to say, just because, you know, you were kind enough to say that I'm a great loss. The truth is, none of us is even vaguely indispensable. I mean, you know, there are any number of people who will come in behind, you know, dead men's shoes, as it were. And, um, uh, and you know, there are lots of great new people uh, in the party and there are, you know, there's people far greater and more um, uh, uh, important than me, like Ruth Davidson and Johnny Mercer and, you know, like ring real off names. So so I don't actually buy that just, just as a matter of, you know, how life and politics works, you know. Uh, the waters will close over my head. Nobody will remember my name. <laughs> oh, they and will. No, no, I no, will. no, 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 no. I'm not being self-pitying. I actually, genuinely, I just don't. I think there's a complete delusion. This idea that you know, there's a, there's probably one or two important figures in each generation, but no more. Uh, and and I'm not one of this generation's one or two. Um, what I think is important is what is happening collectively sort of to the organization as it were yes. of of the conservative party and of course as ever with the conservative party it's an, it's a bit of a sort of muddle uh and it's a bit of a mess but it's not a it's not a plot in or it's not a conspiracy in the in the sort of way that you feel that you know momentum was a pretty well planned takeover yes. of a you know slightly moribund uh, organization um, uh, with a lot of people who, you know, were, uh, who is it who said that, you know, the problem with socialism, it takes too many evenings? Os- <laughs> Os- Oscar Wilde. I, I think, think it was, was. yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, we're, the conservatives aren't like that. It's no. all much more haphazard. Um, now, what happened with my association? I think it would be wrong to say that it was, you know, straightforward infiltration by former UKIP members uh, who then immediately, you know, orchestrated by leave.eu tried to push me out. It's, that's not true. What happened was, uh, firstly, that there were all, I was selected in an open primary, not actually a, an open primary in the sense where every voter got a ballot paper, yeah. which is how Sarah Wollaston was selected. Uh, but mine was, what, I think, what technically you would call an open caucus. So it was a meeting at which members of the public could come who weren't members yes. of the Conservative Party. And as a result, the meeting had roughly 300 Conservatives in it, and probably 60 or 80 concerned members of the public who wanted to select the next Conservative mm. candidate because they knew that was probably the best way they'll have influence yes. over over their MP, given it was a fairly reliably Conservative seat. And I won it, but quite narrowly. It 
I'm almost certain because the 60 to 80 voted for me. Yeah. Um, so I won it off the back of the votes of people who are not members of the local Conservative Association. So I was already, in a sense, slightly, slightly semi-detached. Yeah. And, you know, I liked the people there and I tried hard and they tried hard. And in that rather sort of English way, we all tried to <laughs> see the best in each other. But there were always a... a a rump or a, a no, rump is one word because they were actually quite powerful. A, a, a cabal of people who never liked me, never voted for me, and I wasn't that kind of conservative. They didn't like David Cameron either, uh, but they sort of swallowed it because they thought we it might get us back into power. Yeah, um, they got quite uh, stroppy over gay marriage, which they blamed me for, not without some uh, reason, because I was. Um, probably the closest gay friend that David Cameron had. Yes. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I sort of got over that hump, as it were, with them. But so they were always there. And then what happened after the referendum and after the 2017 election was a lot of former Conservative members who had resigned over gay marriage rejoined the party, okay. plus a few people who had been active members of UKIP locally. Now, some of those former Conservatives had voted UKIP and then come back some of them had even joined UKIP um, and and then you know there was a, a local UKIP councillor um, who we welcomed with open arms because he said you know I've always I've always been a conservative I cared a lot about Europe and the referendum you're now delivering what I've always wanted on that so I'll be a conservative again yeah. and of course you know as a political party you say great come back yeah. uh, and he's a good man and he's a good councillor but what he did was what you naturally do in politics he got all his mates in Yes. Because uh, he was running the local branch and he then got all his mates in. Yeah. And then when I declared that I would do literally anything to stop no deal Brexit, it was like lighting a match to a, to a you know, bone dry bonfire. Um, uh, and they off they went. And what happened was that the people who, in a sense, always hated me suddenly saw an opportunity to coalesce with this new group who really, really cared about this one issue yeah. on which I was being particularly outspoken. Uh, and they just made it ever increasingly clear that they were going to get rid of me if they had half a chance. Um, and initially I thought, well, I'm just not going to give them half a chance. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and indeed I could have carried on avoiding the issue just because they have actually no constitutional power to initiate a deselection at this early stage you know we haven't got an election due yeah. for three years but then I just thought I just thought I'm not sure if I'm really ready to do this anymore I, I don't know whether I want to stand again in 2022 mm -hmm. I didn't then know it's a long way off I'm 53 I've you know had cancer twice Am I really going to do this all over again? So I thought, why put them through misery and myself through misery when actually there's a solution, which is that I part company with them. They can go off and select a candidate in their own image and I can, uh, and I can you know, serve out my term and, and be true to myself. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, in a sense, isn't a story of an organised momentum takeover by the hard right. And I think the same is true, you know, in all of these different stories in, you know, Dominic Grieve's constituency, it is a bit more orchestrated because it's the former UKIP parliamentary candidate who's been yeah. in Sam Gima's constituency. Uh, I understand from him, it's it's actually not really about Brexit at all. It's a group of people who 
never liked him, quite possibly for quite uh, un, uh, unpalatable reasons, mm. uh, who are now using this as an excuse. You know, in Anna Subri's constituency, you know, it was another thing altogether. So in, its, in that classic Tory way, it's a bit of a muddle um, and it's not particularly planned. Um, but the overall impact of it is that it's because dogma has entered the bloodstream of the Tory party. And that is where the similarity with momentum and the Labour position lies, is that ultimately what is driving this activity is is ideological fixation, which is not a conservative habit of mind. What's a real shame is, is when personal relationships <coughs> break down or, or you're suffering abuse. And I just wonder... You know, people can disagree with you and say, look, Nick, I'm a conservative, but I'm a, I'm a, I really believe in a no deal, clean break, WTO Brexit, whatever. Sadly, that does sometimes morph into personal animosity and, and, and hatred. And or, even though you've sort of brushed it off with a great deal of good humour, there was, you, I mean, you had messages, one person said, we're going to cut your balls off. <laughs> I mean, is this, how bad was it? I mean, did you get much face to face stuff? No, actually, I always find that the the British are all, always, you know, terrifyingly polite when when you actually meet them face to face. So, like many MPs, when somebody sends me a particularly ranty email, um, what I often do is invite them to come in and see me at the surgery. <laughs> and how many you know, do? Quite a few. Wow! And um, and you know, they come in and you think that they they come in determined to say what they really think and speak their mind. Uh, and it's amazing how few of them do. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it doesn't take much to um, to make them m- make them sort of understand that you're a reasonable bloke and, you you know, you disagree, but you're not you're not the sort of spawn of Satan. Um, my my main uh, approach to this, which is, I must say, one I would recommend to not just to MPs, but to anybody in in even vaguely public life is I never, ever ever look at what people say on Twitter in response to a tweet I've sent. I do not see Twitter as a conversation. It is a place where I broadcast. It's a notice board. Yeah. And I'm amazed. And I understand if you're a journalist, there's a, you know, you're meant to engage with your readers and enter into a conversation. I completely get that. And that's a, a different profession. And it's perhaps got different requirements. But if you're a politician... Maybe if you're in a very marginal seat, you suddenly think this is the way to, you know, s- secure those sort of ties of, of loyalty and yeah. understanding. But, but generally, I think it's just really bad for your mental health. Yes. And, you know, if you're in politics, you know, you, one of the things you really have to work out quite early on is whose opinion do you care about, really care about, as yes. in personally care about. And then ignore everybody else. <laughs> you know, I don't give a stuff what anybody writes about me in some column, let alone on some, you know, mad tweet sent at 1am when they're drunk and sitting in their underpants on their sofa. They can say what the hell they like about me. You know, I'm a public figure. Of course they can. But I'm not going to dignify it by reading it. Have you always had that approach? Or is this... Um you, know, you say you've survived cancer twice. I'm sure that has given you a fresh perspective on life and existence and what struggle is. Is that partly a, a, a kind of kernel of that experience that you think, actually, I've, I've been to hell and back and a tweet compared is, mm-hmm. is nothing? Or did you always have that view? So it's a, I suspect it's a combination. One of the things I enjoyed that um, 
the funny thing is when you do what I did on Monday night, people for 24 hours are just incredibly nice to you and about you. They, and, and you know perfectly well it won't last, but, <laughs> but enjoy it while it does. Um, one of the people who I've been working with most closely uh, on this Brexit plan, Comet Market 2.0, that I have been trying to promote uh, is Lucy Powell, who's Labour MP for Manchester Central, former chief staff to Ed Miliband, and who I didn't know at all before and who I just think is absolutely terrific. She's right up there and with Jess Phillips in my, in my list of Labour crushes. Um, <laughs> uh, and she sent this tweet uh, after I uh, uh, sort of left the Conservative Party um, with s- some very nice adjectives describing me, but the one that was my favourite, uh, which I don't... I sort of... One of those adjectives you rather dream about people uh, saying about you was steely. I like steely (laughs) very much indeed. Um, And I think that I have probably become more steely since being ill. Uh, And, and, you know, uh, I was about to say something rude, but, you know, I couldn't give give a flying. (laughs) Uh, uh, And I think that is definitely emphasised by by recovering from illness. You you focus on the stuff that matters. Um, One of my closest friends sent me, it's a very famous New Yorker cartoon, but it did make me roar with laughter. Um, It has a man looking rather harassed at his desk. uh, And some friend or contact is obviously calling him, asking him if he'd like to meet uh, for lunch or dinner. And the man is saying, Thursday, no, I can't do Thursday. How about never? Would never work for you? (laughs) (laughs) And and that has slightly become my attitude to most social engagements and uh, interactions with, you know, people other than the people I really love, my my family and, you know, my husband and my very close friends. And I I think it it does thicken your skin the experience of, you know, of, 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 you know, having to confront mortality. Because you were, I mean, the, the, the famous or infamous picture of you uh, being wheeled out of hospital to vote in 2017 in one of those first rounds of, of Brexit votes. Article 50. Very, very, yes, it was Article 50. Very powerful image. Um, okay, but let me tell you something here, because what I would hate people to think was that that was all, you know, honour and principle and, you know deep commitment to the cause. Of course, there was an element of that. You know, I was painfully aware that I hadn't voted for Brexit. Yeah. But that my constituents had. And I wanted to send a message to them that uh, that I was going to represent them and deliver this result. And I indeed feel I've been trying to do that consistently since then. Um, But there was another element too, uh, which was I cooked it up with the whips because I don't know if you remember, but Diane Abbott suddenly announced that she had a cold. That's right. And that unfortunately, a headache, she had yeah. a headache. Yes, it was a bad headache, and she was going to have to miss the division. Yeah. And what the Whips and I thought was that it would be a rather nice counterpoint if this guy who was going through <laughs> chemotherapy came out with a, in a wheelchair <laughs> with, with a mask on his face, was wheeled in. Oh, um, man. And that, of course, but I think there's something important there, which is that politics is always a mixture of high and low. Yes. And don't ever trust somebody who's only high. Oh, always. Because the truth is there, they'll lead you into terrible places. Um, You know, the high and mighty, highfalutin, sort of, you know, holier than thou, God forbid. Um, I think who you might be thinking of. (laughs) There's got to be a bit of raw, you know, gamesmanship. 
Yeah, and kind of own it. I spoke to George Osborne on the show last week. and yeah, He has a little too much. Well, that's, he's always been so openly political, but I like that. And you know when you watch, whenever I go to America and you watch their political chat shows there, they're so open about their <clears throat> tactics and their strategy. Yeah. They're just open. They say, well, we're targeting these voters because if we get the Hispanic vote, you yeah. think, we would never do You know, no, a, know, a British politician would never say, well, we're deliberately targeting black people because yeah. if they vote, then Labour is sorted. You know, yeah. you just would never. That might be the truth, yeah. but you don't go out and say it. No, so no. in a way, I always respect those people who do yeah, say, well, that's, naked about that's it. why we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, well, that's a great. I, I, you know what? It's because there's been so much. I do, can I just have to tell you? Because it only just came to my mind who the whip was. The whip was Steve Barclay, the current wow. Brexit secretary. Wow! He came down to King's College Hospital. <laughs> he, you know, he took me out of my room. Um, you know, wheeled me along the passageway, um, and I got a ride in the chief whip's car too. Oh, lovely! <laughs> I mean, given it's not quite, a, I suppose, a point about high and low. It's more. Uh, of um, different futures you could have had, a sliding doors moment, if you like, which I suppose Brexit caused. Which you were very close to David Cameron um, for a period. You know, he was the Tories' bright hope. He'd <coughs> effectively got Labour out of uh, power after 13 years. He then gets his own majority uh, in 2015. Um, there was a huge possibility there for the Tory party to truly modernise and seize the centre ground and you would have absolutely been at the heart of that mm. not just as an ally but someone who's with, with a policy brain and all the work you've done with policy exchange and all this you were kind of part of a team I mean potentially a future Prime Minister at one point and now you're not even a Tory yeah. member of Parliament I mean, <laughs> I'm the sole member of the party that doesn't exist um, uh, I know I know it's funny how life works but the good thing about uh, cancer is that the one thing you you no longer care about is things like that frustrated dreams and all of that I, I funny enough late last night after the very late very close vote on the bill that I've been heavily involved in um, I was meeting with Oliver Letwin with a the member of the cabinet who uh, will remain nameless and on his wall were uh, photographs of there's always a sort of formal cabinet photo yes the, in the pillared um, room yes exactly uh, and it was of, of the prime minister's Theresa May's cabinets both after she took over in 2016 and then after the election in 2017 and I sort of looked up and Oliver was standing next to me and I said to uh I said to him, were you in that one? And then he said, no, 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 these were all since me. And I said, oh, well, that was once a dream of mine. And it was odd because, though it sounded like it was wistful, yes. I didn't feel any wistfulness. No. And, and it's curious that because if you if you had asked me, you know, even recently, I probably would have expected to feel wistful that, you know, the ambitions yes. and hopes that I once had. Uh, had not um, materialised and now, you know, won't materialise. Um, oh. But actually, I don't feel wistful at all. Um, I, you know, I've enjoyed... I've had many different kinds of experience. Um, and actually, funnily enough, though it's been the most uh, stressful and pressured, uh, uh, the experience of the last few months has been the best of all by a country mile. You say that those ambitions won't be realised... And I kind of understand what you mean. However, politics is now volatile. Both parties are, are splitting or will split or are going through this crisis. You've got the independent group 
or Change UK, or whatever they're going to be called, this sort of new, you know, that is still very new and it's high risk, potentially high reward, who knows? Um, you know, in a volatile general election, if people don't want Jeremy Corbyn and they blame Theresa May for uh, damaging Brexit, you could be part of some sort of centre ground movement, perhaps. I mean, uh, have you talked to any members of the independent group? They must be trying to get you to join. I mean, obviously, some of them are, are political friends of mine, like Anna Subri and, and Sarah Wollaston, particularly. But I've been very clear that I don't want to join them. Um, Why? And and I think that what they're doing is admirable, and I hope it succeeds, and I think it might succeed. Um, but I don't want to be part of it. Um, I, they have defined themselves. And I think the pollsters might well say very intelligently, they've defined themselves as the party of Remain. Mm. Um, if one was being cruel, the party of Ramon, uh, the difference being that, you know, they actually want to stop it. Yes. Um, uh, and that is clearly a, uh, a bit of leave aside the principle, which I think for all of them is very genuine and sincere. Um, it's also a I think probably quite a clever piece of political positioning because all of the evidence suggests that people are increasingly defining themselves by their referendum vote. Yes. Uh, and that there will be a huge body of voters uh, who define themselves by their horror at the idea of leaving the European Union and their desire to either not leave or get back in as soon as possible. Um, I genuinely, sincerely do not believe that that is the right course for the country. I just, uh, for all that I was a Remainer, uh, I think that we have to find a new kind of relationship with the people and the, the, the countries uh, to our east. Um, and I think that the kind of relationship we tried for the last, you know, 40 years, you know, worked for a while and, and then stopped working. And that's, in truth, been our history for a thousand years. Is yeah. that, you know, no pattern has ever worked for very long. And we tried marrying them and we tried invading them and we tried, <laughs> you know, balance of power politics. Yeah. And we've tried everything and nothing ever lasts very long. It lasts for 30, 40 years. And I think we need a new kind of relationship. And so I just can't, you know, if, if nothing else, the one advantage of my current position is that I, I can pretty much stick to what I believe in. And I'm not going to pretend to believe in that. The other thing is I just observe is a completely separate point. I think it's a very, it's a long-term game realigning uh, British politics. Yeah. It's not going to happen in two or three years. I think it might start to happen in two or three years. And I'm not sure if, I, you know, I'm... I'm got it in me, uh, bluntly. Uh, I've been in for a while. I'm 53. That's young. I, I know. I mean, I'm not saying it's old, but I'm. I'm just not sure if I have it in me to do another 10 or 15 years. Is what I think it takes. I think it needs, you know, 35 year olds and 40 year olds who actually think I'm going to be part of this and I'm going to take it from nothing, which is pretty much where Tig is, uh, to the very peak. Uh, but, you know, the, the Chukaramunas are a much better place personally uh, to do that than I think I feel. Well, yes, uh, but you have a contribution to make. I mean, let's say there's another referendum and people then overturn the 2016 result and we vote to stay in. Let's say that happens. So, you know, that, that's not... I won't vote Remain, by the way. If there's another referendum, I won't vote Remain. 
Why? Because we need a new relationship with Europe. It's broken. It's done. And, you know, for all that, the, the, you know, there might be a different result. And, of course, I'll accept that result like I'm trying to accept yeah. the result of the last one. I, I think it would, I mean, I think another referendum would be an enormous mistake. Yeah. I voted for it on Monday night, slightly regret it, but I was trying to get everybody to vote for anything they could live with. Yes. And I was also trying to get referendum supporters to vote for Common Market 2.0, which was only <laughs> moderately successful, as it turned out. But I'll never vote for it again. I, I just think it's a grave, grave error. Okay. But let's say you vote leave or whatever that is and, and you, you're unsuccessful and we vote to rejoin or stay in the European Union. Then that means, obviously not that the issue goes away, far from mm. it, but then it means that at least Change UK or the independent group aren't then just about trying to frustrate a referendum result. They're then perhaps still protecting a, a Remain vote, but they're then broadening out yeah. their offer. Once that, you know, that is then the will of the people... Mm. Is that something that you could then theoretically get involved well, in? I mean, I'm a great believer in, you know, that nothing is impossible because I didn't think I was going to be an independent, <laughs> progressive conservative <laughs> this time last week. Um, uh, so, uh, so you should never rule anything out. But it would require me to be absolutely committed to standing in 2022, which is when I think the next election will be, because I don't think there are more than 100 MPs who would vote for an early election at yeah. the moment. Uh, and I'm not sure I want to do that. I just okay, or maybe maybe some sort of TIG alliance where, apart from on Brexit, maybe you're broadly in agreement with them. So, do you know the funny thing is, and I don't quite know why this is. I, as I say, I genuinely admire them and 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 know a few of them and like them, but they're not actually the people on the other side who I most chime with oh that's really interesting and the people i most chime with are so lucy powell yeah jess phillips um liz kendall yes peter kyle love peter kyle um norman lamb in the yeah. lib dems um ben lake in the plaid cymru alison mcgovern Alison, yes, less so, uh, uh, but but I, I mean, I have a lot of uh, admiration for her. Um, Stephen Gethins in the SNP. He's brilliant. Now, maybe that these people, I've, the people I've been working with to try and yeah. construct my coalition, as it were, for the compromise. But I really, really, I admire them. I like them. I believe in them. I feel trust in them. Yes, and. I don't think they're all going to leave their parties. Certainly not the SNP. To join TIC. No, no. But not e even, you know, Jess Phillips and, uh, and Lucy Powell. No. You know, I think that they may, you know, join up with Tom Watson's, you know, attempt to Future sort of Britain wrest Britain. back the control of the Labour Party. And I wish them the best of luck. Um, but uh, so that's why I feel like it's not obvious to me that... The, the the new force that might have the most electoral chance, which is probably where TIG is yeah. trying to position itself. I don't think it's necessarily for me. So, I mean, that's an interesting question. So let's discount the SNP, because they're never going to leave the SNP. No. Um, and, and obviously, Scotland's place in the union would be a, a, you know, a red line. No, I for... do tease Stephen Gethins, because basically... 
He's married to a girl from Kent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're all Angus Robertson was born in Wimbledon. Like, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, there's a lot in people's history, and, and that's true of, of all political parties, of course. Um, but I guess I suppose what you're maybe hinting at, consciously or otherwise, is a potential realignment with other people might be more attractive. So if Lucy Powell, Jess Phillips, and the other people, Peter Kyle, left but didn't join TIG, but said let's set up something else. Now, whether they're on, t- you know, that is too similar ground, and what would the real distinction between Labour take and then them be? But a, a realignment around something else might tickle your fancy. Yes, but I don't think it's a party. No, okay. I think it's an approach to politics. So, what the thing that I guess that I've been most uh, churning away at the back of my mind while doing all of this uh, uh, stuff for uh, on Brexit is is the idea that MPs of different parties in a hung parliament, and this is, a hung parliament is kind of key to this, yes. but I think we're likely to have hung parliaments to the eye, as far as the eye can see, uh, that in a hung parliament, that MPs of different parties with common interests and uh, in objectives working together to bring them about. And, uh, and it started for me before this whole Brexit campaign. I, I When I came back from being ill, I started writing a a book online sort of a sort of policy manifesto called Square Deal which was inspired by Teddy Roosevelt who was president and Republican president but a very progressive Republican president in the United States at the turn of the century and who reformed capitalism and created national parks and did lots of wonderful things and he's a great inspiration to me and one of the proposals in the book was for a hypothecated tax so a dedicated tax base to take national insurance and turn it into an NHS tax so that we fund the NHS separately from everything else. It has its own tax. We all pay it out of our wages. We all know our employers pay it too. And I have it wrote it. I then sort of reached out to Sarah Wollaston, who's chair of the Health Select Committee, who's then obviously a Conservative, to Liz Kendall, who's passionate about health and is also on the Select Committee, to Norman Lamb, uh, who was a health minister in the yeah. in the coalition, uh, Oliver Letwin, uh, and um, uh, and actually to Nick McPherson, who's uh, now a member of the House of Lords but was permanent secretary at the Treasury, um, and we sort of worked together on a a campaign to try and get the government to think about you know a hypothecated funding system for the NHS as the best way of persuading the British people that they needed to pay a bit more yeah. to have the NHS funded uh, properly but that they would need the reassurance of knowing that the money they were paying was going into the NHS and only in the NHS yeah. and that was where it sort of sowed the seed for me of this approach and I you know what I the, the sort of the brand in my mind is together the, the best things that people do are the things they do together yes. with other people and you that you come together around an idea around a, a cause you don't have to necessarily confine yourself in a permanent structure of a political party uh, you're more fluid than that and we'll be together with some people so I've then since then you know I've probably been involved in two processes the process which culminated last night uh, in the bill being passed the Cooper Letwin bill now that is something I've done together with Oliver Letwin, Yvette Cooper, Hilary Benn, Norman Lamb, Liz Kendall, uh, Jack Dromey, Caroline Spellman um, but then the Common Market 2.0 proposal for Brexit, that I've done together with different people. So some overlap, 
But with Rob Halfon, the MP for Harlow, with Stephen Kinnock, the MP for Aberavon, with Lucy Powell, who I've uh, talked about, the MP for Manchester Central. And and I think, for me, I've, that's what's the most rewarding. And I think that there's some bigger potential to it. It's not just about my way of doing things. I think it's a sort of grown-up way of doing politics that I think people will respond to uh, because they'll see that you're not being too party political, um, that you're not um, worrying about you know which party is going to own this policy, who's going to benefit from it at the polls. But, you're, but you are genuinely, you're not being starry-eyed about it. You're generally trying to get stuff done. And in a, in a parliament that has no majority and where party whipping and discipline has completely evaporated. You know, if I can find 10 people who say, this is what we want, and we will vote to secure it, and we will withhold our votes if you don't give it to us, I think I can start having, you know, some quite persuasive conversations with the Chancellor of the Exchequer or, you know, the Chief Whip of the Conservative Party or whatever. So that that's if I have a plan, which, you know, is slightly making it up as I talk, a bit like everything else I do. Um, uh, uh, it's roughly that, is to spend the next three years seeing if one can... I'll give you another example. I took over as the chair of the um, APPG, the All-Party Parliamentary Group, on um, uh, assisted dying. There's, I think it's you know mad that we don't have any kind of way for people with terminal illnesses to uh, organise their the end of their lives uh, in a sort of civilised way um, at a time of their own choosing. Um, and you know they have it now in Canada, they have it in certain parts of Australia, they have it in Oregon, um, and that is a classic. It's not a party political issue. It's barely even a political issue. Yes. It's a philosophical issue, but it's also a sort of humanity issue. And, it, you know, the public are sort of 80, 90% support for it. But Parliament, of course, is sort of stuck and keeps on voting against it. Now, that, you know, is a, as a cause to find the people and bring them together to try and make that bit like gay marriage actually ended up was not a party political issue you know david cameron led it but you know it wasn't the majority of the conservative party who voted for it it was the liberal democrats it was labor it was smp he constructed a coalition behind a particular issue now of course you can't do that for day-to-day stuff like budgets and the like but i'm not so interested in those bits now (laughs) um you know find two or three really important things and get them done together with other people. There is a world that exists in a parallel universe where we never had a Brexit referendum and David Cameron continues on for a few years and the party continues to modernise, perhaps, and ideas like this and people like you ended up being far more influential at the heart of government and not having to do it from, you know, from the back benches. Oh, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I really don't agree with that. Uh, if if all of, if that alternative history yeah. uh, had happened, you know, I'd be stooging away rather, you know, unsuccessfully and and predictably as you know, Secretary of State for Transport or something like yeah. that. Um, and you know, I'd be voting with the whip every night, <laughs> and you know, I'd be arguing for my public spending round, and yes. I'd get frightfully excited about some new eco bus that I'd managed to launch. Uh, I Sounds actually good. think that 
for all that it's been deeply painful and, and divisive and, and you know, there's a lot of risks attached, I actually think that that the effect of Brexit, though it's not just Brexit, it's also, I think, the financial crash on the political system. I mean, it, it is, I think I said to to, to Laura Koonsberg uh, uh, earlier in the week, it's like a, a meteor has hit the political system. Yes. And I actually think that, as a result, our political system and our, and the potential and the opportunities for MPs in Parliament are greater than at any time in my lifetime. You know, for individual MPs and groups of individual MPs uh, working together, I think it's never been greater. Do you do you have a feeling now? Do you think you know if you're not made your mind up that you're going to stand at the next section? Do you think actually I'm going to sort of indulge some in my passions now that I've kind of left the Conservative Party? You know, you're going to you're going to you know go to Ibiza and, and listen, to, <laughs> listen to house music again, or, or, or is that something that you've continued to do, or was that you know? Well, when I got that, home, did that have to stop after a while. When I got home from from my ride on the number 12 bus uh, on Monday night. I did check Skyscanner <laughs> for flights to Ibiza. Wow, um, there you go, I was close. I did think to myself, maybe that's what I need. Um, but then I suddenly realised, of course, we were going to have the votes on the bill. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I, you know, I'd been working on it for so long, I wasn't going to miss the... And, and as it turns out, my vote was kind of important. Yes. <laughs> Given it yeah. one by one. Um, so, so, no. But Yes, I, I, I'm. Uh, I am inclined to um, indulge myself a bit, um, uh, but but also for, fortunately, I'm. I'm uh, I think one of the other effects, perhaps, of of, of of illness is that you're not greedy anymore. You're not, there are. I don't want. I don't long to own things or do things or you know go places or you know i don't have social ambition or any of that sort of stuff i know the things i like um the one thing i would like to do more which i haven't done for a long time is ski and i'm a bit cross that this year brexit has prevented my return not very elegant i have to add (laughs) return to the slopes but um hopefully it won't frustrate your travel plans you'll be in a different queue next time because we'll have left Yes, that so is we, true. You'll have to queue longer no, to no, get no, to the no, Alps no, or whatever. No, no, no. Uh, I, th- I think my honest prediction, so long as we do manage to leave yeah. with a deal, my honest prediction is that almost nothing is going to change. So there'll be a kind of EU plus UK queue rather than... As I'm to but no, not just on that, nothing's going to change. Literally on everything, nothing's going to change. So why, I mean, the reason why I was a Remainer, because I wasn't, you know, I was in no way an enthusiast about the EU. I managed. For, I spent four years as a minister without ever going to Brussels. I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> um, but uh, the reason why I was a Remainer was I just didn't think it was worth the hassle of leaving. And I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be proven right. I think you've probably already been um, proven right in, in that in that sense. But so you're getting into house music as a, as a as a younger man. I mean, you're still young. This is this is a slight myth. So is it? it well. I mean, isn't it? I saw sort of visions of you at Ministry of Sound, you know, off your face on MDMA. No, 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 no. Paul um, the, the I mean, I wouldn't have any problem admitting if I if I was. I'm weirdly, I'm not. Uh, I'm too much of a control freak to to enjoy drugs. <laughs> I don't like that feeling of of losing control of my mind. Yeah. Um, but no, this is a slight myth. So there was this. Um, what's it called? Profile. I think it's yes. called. Yes. Um, and it's a weird thing. I'd never heard of it before. But they they in- interview people who are close to you, but they don't interview you. Yeah, uh, and and they did give me the opportunity to suggest a few people, and and I suggested you know one of my sisters and my best 
friend and Michael Gove who's my other best friend and um, but then I also suggested a great friend of mine who's a sort of uh, a clubbing friend of mine uh, uh, from the, the old days um, called Brian Palm who's a social worker and he while it, none of what he said was wrong or yeah. untrue it sort of created this rather misleading impression that somehow I was this incredible raver, you know, and, you know, doing my mixing and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas the truth is, I'm just a slightly ridiculous, enthusiastic dancer. I just, yeah. I, but I never know what it is I'm listening to. I'm not, you know, one of those people who, I've only been to Glastonbury once, yeah. lost my keys in, in the mud. Yeah. Um, uh, I lost my but, phone last time I went. Oh, so there God, go. the keys yeah. was a real nightmare because I'd locked everything in the car. Oh, Literally everything. Man. We had this very clever plan, which we were going. It was Sunday night. We were going to listen to Beyonce, and then I was, and then we were going to drive out Sunday night to miss the Monday. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a good idea. So we put everything tent, everything other than the clothes we were standing in, yeah. into the car, locked it, <laughs> then lost the keys in the mud. I had nowhere to sleep. Had did you have to break the window? Ended no. Called you know the 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 Subaru, whatever, who said that they'd come the next day. To Glastonbury? Charged me a fortune oh. to break into the car. I mean, the cost was just spectacular. No. And we literally retraced my steps um, uh, for the whole day to try and find these bloody keys. Of course, we never did. No. Uh, and then, amazingly, you know, weeks later... Glastonbury sent them to because you know they then of course they comb the site afterwards and yeah. um, and of course they were sort of six inches down in the mud. Um, I have to say it was the, my husband and I'm never allowed to talk about him in in public, so I won't say anything more about him. But as a test of a relationship, <laughs> you know, I made him walk for, for four hours yeah. around the site, and he never once breathed even a word or a sigh or a, a scowl of you know you bloody fool <laughs> I mean it happens doesn't it and it's you walk in a lot at Glastonbury as well it's a big yeah. place it's, it's a knackering place I'm to go enough, anyway. I'm trying to work out I mean I haven't got tickets so I'd have to blag some but I'm quite keen to go this year I'm going this year because the killers I know it's sort oh. of I'm afraid the killers are slightly sort of Tory band favourite, which is slightly they're weird. They're brilliant. But I, I, last time I saw them was at the Albert Hall. Um, I think they're absolutely brilliant. And um, status quo, status quo? Oh, it's not... Uh, is it not status quo? I saw status quo. Oh, and Stormzy. Stormzy on Friday and The night. Cure. And The Cure. I mean, well, I've I never grew seen up to The Cure. <laughs> you know, so I'm quite tempted, but I'm not sure if... Uh, quite apart from that, I'm not sure if I can get tickets. I'm not sure if I have the energy... Because I, when I went, it was before I was ill last time. And you do need a lot of stamina, don't you? you my, know, my especially anchor. if it's wet, because you can't sit down. Oh, no. It's, uh, you totally underestimate the size of the site, how yeah. frustrating it is just getting anywhere, because the sheer amount of yeah. people and everything. But I saw a quote from Matt Hancock in the Evening Standard after last year's, or the year before's Glastonbury. He said, Glastonbury is a walking holiday with a bit of music thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly it. And you, you totally forget how yeah. stressful it is. Yeah. And then you get there and you'd have foul mood for a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but thank God anyway, you so, But I'm not a raver. Uh, You're not a raver, particularly, though, But my, I have my favourite clubs. So my favourite clubs are <laughs> Pasha in Ibiza. Of course. You know, just Naples Ultra. That <laughs> is the best place. It's, I think it's the best designed club interior space in yeah. the way, in sort of the vantage points and the... 
and it's got atmosphere. I don't know what it is. I guess it's just decades of yes. you know what's gone on there. Um, that is my absolute favourite. There was an amazing night, which is where Brian and I used to go, uh, called Fiction. That was at it, in the you know in that whole part of King's Cross has now been developed Bagley's Warehouse and oh yes and opposite there was a venue called the Cross uh, and it and it had this wonderful night called Fiction it's you know classic sort of in a few railway arches but it was just a really nice venue with great music those were those were my sort of two top favourites and then someplace in New York that I went to, I can't remember what it's called um, for quite a few times but um, but now those days are over. Well, maybe. So if you are, dear listener, ever at Pasha in the future and think you see <laughs> a tall, tall ex-Tory so MP, we did, it's um, Nick Bowles. We did last... So I, I basically, you know, I was ill for a year and then I had a year of sort of vaguely recovering. Um, uh, and we agreed. I go to Ibiza pretty much every year um, with the same friend. Uh, and we've been going for... 20, 30 years together. And she uh, asked me out um, at the end of my year of illness. And my I'd had this blood trans, this blood uh, stem cell transplant, you know, wow. bone marrow transplant, which is meant to reboot your system of producing blood. And, and it wasn't working. And, you know, it's meant to, the, the, the your new stem cells are meant to sort of get kick into gear. Uh, uh, within a few weeks and and it had been months and I was needing to have blood transfusions every week, a couple of times a week and things were just stubbornly not improving and it was a bit worrying because it might have then meant that I needed another one and that would have to be somebody else's blood and stem cells and that's much, much uh, harder. So it was a little troubling but I just said to my fantastic uh, doctors at King's College Hospital uh, that you know, I really needed to go to be. Th- I just, I just need. I hadn't had a holiday for a year, yeah. so we concocted this incredibly elaborate plan. And I had, you know, blood. I took blood out on the plane and all my various injections, and had to get all these certificates. And they, they sort of double dosed me at the start of the week so that I'd be able to get through the whole. A week lot of people double drop when they go to. Anyway, I got there, and then the curious thing is, my friend booked this sort of. Classic Ibiza hippie shit, you know, <laughs> sort of massage. Come, oh, lovely! Come, you know, meditation, Kundalini energy work. Oh, wow! Is what it's called. Yes, yes. Chakras and all that. One sort of could, stuff. one couldn't say that um, uh, inappropriately, but I Kundalini. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so I had this from the, uh, when I was there, and and I of course didn't go clubbing that week because I could barely move, but I did swim in the sea pretty much every day, um, and I came back went into the hospital, and my bone marrow was working. Wow. And so, of course, immediately we all declared it was Ibiza that Ibiza did it. Hills. You know, the ley lines, the, you know, all of this sort of stuff, <laughs> all that hippie shit had worked. You know, it was the Kundalini energy work oh, after, after nine months. Anyway, so then last year, which was a year after that, we agreed at that, that, that time that we were going to come back together and we were going to have a not-dead-yet <laughs> night out. Yeah. And we were all so chuffed because we're all in our 50s. And we we managed to stay out until 7 in the morning. Uh, wow. And we danced the night away. Um, they all then have concluded that Not Dead Yet is slightly macabre. Um, <laughs> so uh, next year, uh, well, this year, yeah. August, it's going to be still going strong. Oh, that's good. I can't think of a better um, note to end on. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Well, there you go, Nick Bowles. What, uh, I mean, just what a guy. Um, and and what, a, you know, I, I can't, I'm just very grateful that he came in this week to speak to, to me because I just think, you know, when someone's been at the centre of the news like that, it's great to talk to them right in the, right in the middle of it all. Um, uh, so who knows what happens next? But, I mean, he's early 50s. He's, you know, obviously been through it with cancer, but he's fit and healthy. He's, he's still got tons of ideas. What a shame it'd be. Whether you're left, right, leave, remain, or, or none of the above, I think we, we can all agree it would be a shame if Nick Bowles wasn't involved in politics beyond the next few years. So hopefully he, he finds a way to, to stick around. You can email the show, of course, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for all your wonderful emails. Matthew Bennett got in touch from Sydney, Australia. He said, Matt, I'm a listener from Australia. I don't know why I said it like that. He said, I love the show. I'm super keen on the upcoming Ken Clark show. I'm very excited. He said, the above link is to a Harold Wilson conference speech. I thought you'd like it. It shows him at the peak of his political power and skill. I've never seen him so animated before watching this video. Matthew. Thank you. So, it was a brilliant video. I loved watching it. If there are any political videos from yesteryear you would like to send in, please do send them in to politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com. Let me know where you listen. And yes, just to remind you, the tour has been extended. The 25th of May, the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. You can get tickets for that show and all my other tour shows through the website mapford.com slash live. I'll see you again next week. And this episode of The Political Party was produced by Daisy Knight. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.